chapter 3. I had intended for this to be the last sermon in Galatians 3 before we moved on to chapter 4. However, um, I decided to cut the sermon in half and preach one half this week and one half next week. I felt like the things that I wanted to say, felt compelled to say from the Word was important enough this week that I wanted you to hear it and what uh, I am very eager to say um, in the second half of this chapter or this sermon uh, did not want to to make us stress for time in either. But I've cut the sermon in half, so uh, you know what that means for the time of this sermon. It means absolutely nothing. <laughs> so uh, please hear God's word. Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 19 through uh, verse 25. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put, put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we open your word, we pray that your word would reveal you to us, would reveal your grace to us, and would reveal even ourselves to us. Father, work by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I used an illustration some weeks back to show how far God's righteousness is from us. And I emphasize that God's righteousness is infinite. And that for us to be able to have fellowship with God, we have to have infinite righteousness. I talked about how God's righteousness is perfect. And in order for us to have fellowship with God, our righteousness that we have must be perfect. That you must be perfectly righteous if you have any hope of having a relationship with God. I used the illustration of the Grand Canyon. I said you have a better chance of taking a running uh, leap to jump across the Grand Canyon at its widest point. You have a better chance of reaching the other side than you do of attaining to God's standard of righteousness uh, on your own. In other words, it is impossible to reach the standard of God's perfect righteousness. 
I want to examine the same truth. But instead of taking our starting point in God, I want to look at this truth from the opposite vantage point. I want to look at this truth and how impossible it is for, for us to reach God's righteousness by looking at ourselves and looking at our unrighteousness. I hope you will find, as this sermon opens up and as we look at God's Word, that you are more more unrighteous than you realize. The law of God shows us how far we really are from God because of our unrighteousness. The Scripture says some pretty... Uh, remarkable things about the purpose of the law. I'm going to say a few things about the law of God that are probably going to surprise you. In fact, I think probably many of you would be willing to dismiss me as heretical after you hear some of the statements that I make if I'm unable to back it up with Scripture. And the statement that I'm going to make is that God gave the law of God to us to increase trespasses. The Bible emphasizes how much God hates sin. And so logically, we think that because He hates sin, God's purpose in giving us the law is to minimize sin. But God gave the law to increase our trespasses. He gave the law to multiply our trespasses. God gave us the law to proliferate sin in this world. Doesn't that make you feel uneasy? That goes against everything that we've learned about God. The idea of God purposely increasing sin seems to go against everything that God stands for. But the Bible is clear. God intentionally increased the amount of sin in the world. That's what Paul's saying here in verse 19. He asked, well why then the law? Why then would God give the law? And he says, it was added because of trespasses. The truth is that before God gave the law, sin was already in the world. Remember Genesis 6-5? We we looked there uh, a few weeks ago. You don't need to turn there. But God looked at the world. This is before the flood. He looked into the heart of man. And he saw that every intention of the thoughts, or every, uh, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. These are the, the thoughts that lie in back of our thoughts. These are the intentions of the thoughts of our hearts. These are the intentions of the deepest thoughts in our heart. And God looked, and all he saw, every motive, was sinful. 
God looked and saw that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And if you thought that that is why he sent the flood, in order that he might wipe man out and, and so that man might start with a clean slate? No. Even after the flood, Moses, after he got off the ark, built an altar to God and offered a sacrifice. God smelled the pleasing aroma. And he said, and this is Genesis 8.21, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every intention of man's heart is evil from childhood. God gave the law to help us see that we truly are sinful. Ever since Adam sinned, Sin has been in the world. Paul says, and this is his argument in Romans chapter 5, that uh, death was in the world before the law was given, meaning that sin was in the world. And God knows us. He knows that we don't like to, to hear that. He knows that we don't like to own our sin, that we don't like to really to believe that we are really that bad. In my first church, I was the associate pastor, but the pastor had been out of town and I was preaching. And I preached from Romans 3, verses 9 through 18. And uh, just to let you know what this says, this is uh, Romans 3, uh, 9 through 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are all under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave with their tongues um, they practice deceit the poison of vipers is uh, on their lips their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery the way of peace they have not known there is no fear of God before their eyes I preached on this passage and there was a sweet um, older lady named Mary Jane And I was standing back at the back door after I had preached. And she said, I know that that is in the Bible. But I have never been that bad. And the Bible, however, says that this is true of us. We don't like believing it. In fact, the word sin is falling out of disuse in church after church across our country. But God so loves sinners that He added the law in order that He might multiply our sins so that we might see that we really are sinners. He loves us so much that He wants to convince us that we are really as bad off as He knows we are. He multiplied the laws in order that our sins might be multiplied and that we might believe that we are sinners. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 says, Now the law came in order to increase the trespass. Can it be any more clear than that? 
That's why God gave the law. Philip, or, or, and we read earlier in our responsive reading from Romans 3, verses 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And we are so hard-hearted, and we love to believe the best about ourselves, that God multiplied the sin in order that we might see that, yes, the Bible is true in what it says about us. Philip Ryken says, One purpose of the law is not preventative, but provocative. Rather than preventing sins, it actually provokes people to sin. This is Paul's argument. He said that God did not give us the law to justify us. But rather, he's given, he gave us the law to magnify and reveal the extent of our sinfulness. Martin Luther He doesn't mince words. Here's what Martin Luther said about this passage. The true function and the chief and proper use of the law is to reveal to man his sin, blindness, misery, wickedness, ignorance, hate and contempt of God, of death, hell, judgment, and the well-deserved wrath of God. Martin Luther, Luther, why couldn't you be a little more clear? What do you mean? Well, he's being very clear. What he's, what Paul is saying is the law is us is for us to be a mirror. When I look in the mirror, I won't tell you how I see myself. I'll tell you how my wife describes me. She describes me, and she's not here to defend herself. My uh, my son got sick, and she had to take him home, and it's just as well. <laughs> So you have to take my word for it. (laughs) And preachers don't lie. So, she says that I am a handsome, 42-year-old man with a distinguished smattering of gray hair. Actually, that's not completely accurate. She doesn't use the word handsome. I think she she uses the word hot. (laughs) Like I said, I'm glad she's not here. God uses the law as a mirror for us. And when we look into the mirror of God's law and we look intently and we look truthfully, you know what I see when I look into the mirror of God's law? I see a self-centered, selfish, self-righteous, man-pleasing sinner. And that's just scratching the surface. That's not even looking at the sin beneath the sin, looking at the motives. You begin looking at the motives and it becomes much, I become much more complicated and much more sinister. But that is, God's, that is the function of God's law. To help us see us as who we really are. I've told you on different occasions that I became a Christian while I was in college. told you part of my testimony. told you about how I began reading the scriptures because this, um, my resident assistant, uh, RA, Brent Robinson, would come and read the Bible to me. And so I started imitating Brent, started reading the Bible. 
And I became a Christian because I started reading the Scriptures. But what may surprise you is in reading the Scriptures, I became a Christian not because I met God primarily, but because I met myself. Every time as I was reading through the New Testament, through the Gospels, and I would see the hypocritical Pharisees, I found myself... When I was reading through the Gospels and the disciples would be unbelieving, I would find myself. When I started reading the Old Testament, and I would be pulling for the Israelites as they are in the desert. Come on, Israelites. God is, you can see Him right there. Why won't you be faithful to Him? Why do you keep turning away and complaining against Him when you can see the pillar of fire and smoke? Come on, Israelites. You can do it. I realized that I was pulling for myself as I was pulling for them. And they continued in their rebellion. And I realized that even though I was saying, Lord, Lord, to quote Matthew 7, 21-23, that I really didn't belong to the Lord Jesus. And in my desperation, I cried out to Him. And my cry was, God, if you don't save me, I won't be saved. And that was the content of my prayer. And the Lord Jesus brought me to himself. But it was the law. Because I saw myself revealed in the Bible. Calvin says that this is a proper use of the law. Calvin says the law was given in order to make transgressions obvious and in this way to compel men to acknowledge their guilt. I want to make a parenthetical statement at this point. I do not rejoice in telling people that they are sinners. In fact, I am truly disgusted by the preachers who try to scare people into being saved. You sinners! You know, people... That's not really the reaction that, uh, you know, preachers are wanting when they do that. (laughs) Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says it is God's kindness that leads you toward repentance. As I am emphasizing our sin... As I'm talking about how you are worse than you might imagine. When I am talking about God multiplying our sin or magnifying it before us. I don't simply want you to see your sin. I want you to see the love of God. Who is magnifying your sin because he is so eager to have a relationship with you. God gave the law to magnify our sin in order that He might magnify His grace. Have you ever heard of the grace vortex? The grace vortex is basically this. Every one of us, when we became a Christian, by definition, we had to acknowledge that we were sinners. And we had to acknowledge that God was holy. And so in doing so, we also acknowledged that we had a need for Jesus. And so here I am as a sinner. Here God is. He is holy. 
And the Lord Jesus is able to bridge my unholiness and God's holiness. And as I began to grow in Christ, I began to realize I'm really worse than I, I had at first imagined. And also I'm beginning to learn more about God, how, about God and how holy and righteous and perfectly, infinitely holy He is. And I see, well, really, I'm further away than I, I realized and God's bigger and greater and more infinite and more holy than I realized. But as I learn about myself, as I learn about God, I learn that the Lord Jesus Christ is able to bridge that gap. My infinite unrighteousness and God's infinite holiness, my Lord Jesus Christ was able to bridge that infinite gap, able to pay for every one of my sins. And what ends up happening is the Lord Jesus is magnified. When I graduated from seminary, I learned my theology. And I was particularly keyed in on the doctrines of sanctification. I wanted to know how God works in my life to make me, to help me to grow in Christ. And I've got a lot that I'm eager to teach you over the next several years about sanctification. I haven't even begun to scratch the surface of things that I've that I taught early in my ministry about sanctification. But what I have learned um, since I and the reason I haven't taught this as much lately is that I thought, well, if you follow God's process, you know, here's what the way God's working. If you follow this process, well, you'll naturally grow in grace. But what I've learned about that at the same time is I've learned more and more about my own sinfulness. And I realize I don't have it in me to follow God's process in and of myself. I don't have the strength. I find you know, that I'm, I'm worse than I had imagined. And so um, I, the more that I have grown, I've, I've really grown downward. I've, I've, I've learned more about my inability. I've learned more about my unholiness. And I've realized that it's not about me following this process. It comes down to me needing Jesus' help. Not only for my salvation, but for my sanctification. And so, more and more, when I think of my growth in Christ, I think about looking at Jesus and calling on Him and relying on Him. I think I'm just beginning to understand what Paul meant when he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He, he said, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. God gave the law in order that we might see our own inability, that we might see our sin, that we might see who we really are, that it might be that mirror, in order that as we look in the mirror, we might more eagerly and zealously 
look to our Lord Jesus Christ. He gave the law to magnify our sin, to magnify our guilt, in order that He might magnify the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm going to conclude here. I want to ask you, what kind of mirror do you use to look at yourself? Many people like mirrors that uh, cover up the blemishes. They like these mirrors that kind of lie to them, that make them seem a little better than who they are. They like those mirrors that give the answer when you ask mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all. They like for those mirrors to say, you are, you are the fairest. They love those mirrors that tell them that you are well thought of, that you are highly to be respected. There are other people that put the mirrors in places where they won't look at it, in non-obvious places or non-well-lit places, so that they can avoid the mirror. And I'm just talking about people who know that they are sinners, but they're too ashamed to really look into intently into the mirror. They're too too ashamed, and then they may say, "Well, I'm too humble to really look. I'm too fragile." What they're doing is they are using their humility and their shame to hide from themselves. It is remarkably easy to live an unexamined life. There are millions of people in our country who are living lives, living living for decades and dying without even realizing that their entire lives were a lie. That they never really looked at themselves, never really examined themselves and found out who they were. They lived with this perception, this self-made perception that really does not reflect uh, reality. That's why David's prayer in Psalm 139 is so important. Make this a part of your spiritual repertoire. Uh, Make this a part of your prayer times. David's prayer at the end of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That is a difficult prayer to pray, because it is a courageous prayer to pray. To look and ask God, reveal myself to me. Help me to look in the mirror of your law and own what I see. I want you, as a takeaway point this morning, to spend some time this week praying David's prayer, asking God to search you, asking God to help you look at yourself in the mirror of God's law. To help you next week, I hope to be like a heart surgeon and crack open your chest in order that we might uh, uh, look into our hearts, look into the sin that lies beneath our sins, look at the motives for our sin. But ask God over this week for courage for you to do so. Because in doing so, the Lord Jesus Christ will be magnified to you. And there is no better 
knowledge that you can have here on this earth. And don't let your fear of your sin or your pride let you miss out on knowing the Lord Jesus even more. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that He did not come and simply open the door into heaven and leave us be. But we thank You that He has made His home in our hearts by His Spirit. And as Your Spirit lives in our hearts and He has promised to convict us of sin, of truth and of unrighteousness and and righteousness. Father, I ask that He would have His work and have His way in our hearts and in our lives. Father, help us to look into Your Word in order that ultimately we might see Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen.